0: Well, this morning we interrupt our regularly scheduled sermon in Isaiah with a series of sermons we're calling The Disciplines of Grace. The Disciplines of Grace. And by disciplines, I do mean habits. I do mean habits in your life to which you are committed. I do mean routines and customs and practices in your life that are a priority for you, I do mean those things, and yet I mean more than that also. Because when I say disciplines, I don't merely you being more disciplined. Rather, I mean the spiritual disciplines of grace, meaning I mean the most significant activities to which you are called by the living God. And the reason they are this important is because these activities are the gateway to the very presence of God himself. You understand, these habits of grace about which I speak, they are the most meaningful tasks that a human being can do. And the reason they are is because they are the means by which we gain access to the sovereign supernatural power of the living God. Which means, yes, I am talking about reading the Bible and praying. I am talking about meditation and supplication. Passionate study in the word of God and passionate prayer before the throne of God. That is what I mean because you understand there are literally no pursuits in life that excel these. There are no commitments in the world that surpass these. Human beings are at the apex of their greatness when they seek the Triune God through the sacred text and through urgent, desperate supplications and prayer. I don't misunderstand. there are other disciplines of grace equally valid massive and important that you you should do these things also and depending on how you define a spiritual discipline there is giving there is fasting there is serving there is evangelizing you should and must do all those things too because they are commanded by God you must do them but I would argue that those things are only done best when they flow from a heart enthralled by God through the word and through prayer See, the elders and I are persuaded from the Word of God that the church of God brings glory to God when the saints of God know how to pray to God and read the Word of God. And over the next few sermons, that's exactly what we're going to talk about, the spiritual disciplines of grace, the Word, prayer, and fellowship or the one another's or as we call around here redemptive relationships those are essential to a, being a healthy church that changes the world and this morning we begin by talking about prayer not because it's more important than the bible because in reality is we cannot pray the way we ought unless we are filled with the bible but we begin by prayer not only because it's really really hard to do And we can all pray more and better than we do, but we begin with prayer, frankly, because I am concerned that many in the church today have a profound misunderstanding as to what prayer, prayer is and why we should pray. See, there are some really bad, mushy ideas about prayer out there that need to be, frankly, dismantled. There are some really silly and juvenile thoughts about prayer that unfortunately have perpetuated in the history of the church and essentially stuck a stake in the heart of the church's passion to pray. I'm burdened. I'm burdened about this. I'm burdened because I fear that many have neutered prayer. They have domesticated prayer and changed it from an instrument of war into a civilian device merely designed to bring more comfort into their lives. And don't get me wrong, we should pray about health. We should pray about broken bones. We should pray about financial concerns and, and, frankly, anything that makes us anxious because those things matter too. You should pray about those things also. That is not unspiritual. But I'm afraid that many in the church today, that if they didn't have physical or financial things in their lives for which to pray, they wouldn't pray. Pray at all because they have simply forgotten or refused to believe that life is war. Life is war, and we will not know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. That our failures in prayer are owing largely to the fact that it is not only, not only for our personal devotional delight, but it is also a weapon for the church in a world of darkness and unbelief. That prayer is not some mystical act of piety where we think we hear God's voice, but rather it is God's instrument to break open the world. Do you understand? Very few people believe, very few people believe that all we are on our own are spiritual cripples and beggars of grace. Very few people believe that we are engaged in a war more dangerous than any possible nuclear World War III. Very few people believe that the, that the casualties in that war do not merely lose an eye or a hand or even their earthly life, but they lose their souls forever in hell. And until people believe those things, until we believe these things, we will not pray as we ought, nor will we even know what prayer is for. And I realize that for many, and I have been here, that at times prayer can feel downright pointless, right? We've all had times in our life trying to pray that was the very definition of futility, wandering of mind, deadness of affection, coldness of heart. Ten minutes go by and we realize we haven't even prayed for a thing at all. I believe this morning will help you. Because this morning the Lord of prayer himself, the Lord to whom we pray will free you and grip you and instruct you and inspire you and compel you and instruct you how to pray in such a way not only to bring you personal devotional delight, but to pray in a way that makes an impact for eternity. And if that's of interest to you, and I know it is, then our destination is John 14, specifically verses 12 through 14. This morning, here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see six realities. Six realities about prayer that you need to know to exalt Christ, to advance his plan, and to change the world for his glory. Six realities. Realities about prayer that you need to know to exalt Christ, to advance his plan, and to change the world for his glory. And the first reality about prayer is this. Number one, the unlimited power available through prayer. The unlimited power available through prayer. Because you cannot forget what Christ is doing in chapter 14. Back in chapter 13, Christ told his disciples that he had to leave them and they couldn't come with him. That he had to die. He had to be slain like a lamb. In the midst of wolves, he had to be resurrected. He had to be exalted. He had to ascend to the father's right hand. He only had a few minutes left with his frightened, wearied disciples, and they could not come with him. And if you're one of the disciples, that's a pretty terrifying thing to hear. I don't know what to make of this. They're fearful. They're anxious, they're, they're, they're panicking, and yet in chapter 14, Christ immediately takes control of the situation and gives their troubled souls profound soul-comforting benefits that they obtain through faith in him. And one of the benefits that they obtain through faith in him is the supernatural power through prayer to do the absolutely impossible. And speaking of power to do the impossible, look again at verses 12 through 14. Christ says, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works which I do, he himself also will do. And even greater things than these he will do because I am going to the Father. And whatever you should ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you should ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You notice that Christ begins in verse 12 with this customary, truly, truly I say to you. And you know the drill. Whenever Christ says those words, you, meet, you know that the very next words that he is about to say are, that, are going to be really encouraging or really controversial, and Christ does not disappoint. Look what he says. He says, the one who believes in me, the works which I do, he himself also will do. And greater things than these he will do because I am going to the Father. You see? Encouraging and controversial. Because again, notice what he says, the one who believes in him. Will not only do the very works that he has done. As if that isn't astonishing enough, he goes on to say that the one who believes in him greater things than he has done. To the very sovereign supernatural power to do supernatural things. What does this mean? Well, I'll have you know that there are some groups in certain denominational circles who think that on the basis of this text, that all believers should be able to perform miraculous signs. And and not even just miracles, but even miracles greater than what Christ Himself performed? And is that really what He's after? Because to be honest, I don't see any of the people who take that position doing any legitimate miracles of any kind. I don't see them walking through hospitals, healing entire floors. I don't see them walking through cemeteries, raising hundreds from the dead. And plus, I don't think that's what the text is saying anyway. Because you can tell the interpretation of what Christ means here hinges on two things. The meaning of this text hinges on two things. One, the meaning of the phrase, greater things, and number two, the context. We get our heads around those two things, the meaning of greater things and, then, and what the context is, then we understand what Christ means. Because when Christ says, the one who believes in me shall do the works that I have done, get this, the works that he mentions certainly includes miraculous deeds performed by supernatural power. It includes that. And the apostles to whom he was speaking did those very kinds of things. And so Christ is holding out the possibility that some of his disciples would be able to perform supernatural works of miraculous power. That is true. But we know that that promise was not extended to everyone. And here's the other thing you need to think about is that that word works in John's gospel. That is not only used in this, in this gospel to describe supernatural miraculous works. No, That describes other things also, because although Christ includes miracles, he doesn't only mean miracles. Rather, what he means, get this now, is he means that those who believe in him will be given access to the power to perform all the necessary works of love and service and radical sacrifice to fulfill the Great Commission. That's what he's after nowhere in the bible at all is every believer in every age promised the power to do to do the supernatural but every believer is promised the power to do the impossible and what it is what is impossible is the very great commission itself But the other word we have to get to the bottom of here is that word greater because Christ does say the one who believes in me will do greater things than I have done. And that word greater can be understood in one of two ways. Greater can either mean more spectacular, more supernatural, greater in quality, superior to that which Christ has done, or Christ means greater in terms of extent and quantity and having a wider broader impact outside of the little tiny land of israel and i think christ means option b because how can you get more quality and supernatural than raising people from the dead heck how about raising yourself from the dead i mean that's the royal flush of miracles is it not But think about this. Think about what Christ means. Not greater in quality, but a wider global impact beyond the rinky-dink borders of the land of Israel. Because think about it, in a little over a month from this day, 3,000 souls are going to get saved in Jerusalem. In about a decade from this moment, the gospel will reach into Turkey, Syria, Italy, and Greece. And about a hundred years from this moment, the gospel will go down into North Africa, into Europe, reaching as far as Spain. 300 years from this moment, the gospel will have reached Great Britain, Central Europe, into India, into Russia, down into Saudi Arabia. That is what Christ is talking about, a wider global impact making its way to every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And you understand, your lives are a part of that. You are... Instruments of Jesus Christ to do greater things than even He has done. Not greater in quality, but greater in quantity. Being used by Jesus Christ to make an impact that echoes into eternity. I mean, that's what the church is for. I mean, why do you think we sometimes call this church a a launch site for global ministry? Why do you think we sometimes call this church a global outpost of joy in a world of despair? Because we get it from texts like this. And yet, as I said, the getting to the bottom of the meaning of what Christ says here hinges on two things the meaning of the word greater things, greater works, and the context. And that's the question what is the context? What is the immediate focused context of these words right here? Because, again, Christ is talking about limitless power to do the supernatural. And yet, what does that even look like? That's the question. What does it look like? How do we get access to the sovereign power about which Christ speaks? And the answer is, the answer is, listen carefully, where you get access to that supernatural power to do the impossible, get this, is You ask for it. Prayer. Prayer is the context. How you get the power to do the humanly impossible, how you get the power to do greater things than even Christ himself has done is through the instrumentality of prayer. That is what he's saying, and we know that's what he's saying because of the very next words that come out of his mouth, which bring us to the second reality of prayer that you've just got to know. Number two, the unequaled place of prayer the unequaled place of prayer. Because you see, what you have to understand is how prayer fits within God's plan. Because God has a plan, does he not? A sovereign, predestined plan before time to display his glory and the supremacy of his Son To save ruined sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation and people to radically alter and change people's lives that will culminate in a global kingdom of the Messiah sitting and ruling the world from a throne in Jerusalem. That is the plan of God. And here's what you have to understand about prayer is that prayer doesn't change God's plan. Prayer doesn't change what God has predestined. Rather, God accomplishes what he has predestined through the prayers of his people. Do you see? That's what makes prayer so infinitely noble in the plan of God. It's God's way of making sure that everybody knows that the glory alone belongs to him. And you can see it in the text. In fact, I'm going to read verses 12 through 14 again. And this time I want you to listen for every single time Christ uses the word do, the verb do. Listen carefully. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works which I do, he himself also will do. And greater things than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you should ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Do you hear the connection? You are called to do in the Christian life, are you not? And yet if you're doing it right, it's not just you doing the doing. Anything you do in dependence upon and in obedience to Jesus Christ, he is the one doing the doing through you. He does what he does in and through you in response to the prayers of his people. Do you see? That's why prayer exists. It's an instrument to put his sovereign power and supremacy on display. So the point is, if you want to see Christ work, if you want to see him, seriously, if you want to see him do the supernatural, if you want to see Christ change your life and overcome those nagging, hard-to-reach sins that never seem to go away, all you need to do is ask you ask, which is exactly what Christ says in verse 13. Look what he says. He says, and whatever then you should ask in my name, this I will do. Isn't this interesting? That in a context about prayer, Christ doesn't actually use the word prayer. In fact, he doesn't use any of the customary words for prayer. He doesn't say supplication, doesn't say petition, doesn't say request. He says ask, and that is really significant for three reasons. One. One. To say ask means that he is willing and eager. He wouldn't have told you to ask him if he didn't intend to answer. He tells you to ask him for things because he loves to answer the prayers of his people. Number two, he uses the word ask because he is generous and approachable. He's not stingy and tight-fisted. He's never irritated when you ask him for things. No, he wants. He demands that you ask him for what you need because he loves to give his people the things that they need the most. And number three, he used the word ask because he is protective and passionate about his glory. But you see, the insane genius of prayer is that the one who gives the power is the one who gets the glory. He tells you to ask him for things so that it will be obvious to everyone who knows you that it is he and not you who alone deserves the glory. Don't you see? He is willing and eager and generous and approachable and passionate and protective of his glory. What are you waiting for? Ask him for what you need. Because think about it. If I invited you over, you knocked on my door and I opened up and I said, come on in, make yourself at home, everything that is mine is yours, please, please enjoy yourself, if there's anything you need, anything you need that you do not see, please just ask me and I will make sure that it gets to you, I will give it to you, just ask me for what you need, if I did that to you, you no doubt you would feel welcomed and comforted by my generosity and by my hospitality, no, I'm not offering that to you necessarily, <laughs> but the second person of the Trinity is. Whatever you need for the struggles in your soul, whatever perplexing dilemmas in which you find yourself, whatever are the unmanageable situations that do not seem to have any resolution possible in sight, what are you waiting for? Do not hesitate. Ask. This is his universe. This is his world. This is his plan. This is his idea. This is all about his glory. You are a blood-bought son and daughter of the living God. What are you waiting for? Come on in. Make yourself at home. Ask for what you need. And a little advice, if I may. Don't just wing prayer. If you are banking on spontaneity, sometimes that does happen. But to be totally honest... True, spontaneous, passionate prayer will never, ever happen for you unless you are richly indwelt by the word of Christ. You need to be immersed in the scriptures or you will never pray the way you ought, which we'll talk about next week and the week after that. But what I mean is don't just wing it. Write it down. Make a plan. Write down a list of the burdens that burden you the most. And then you just unload on Christ and you ask him for what you need. Again, his job is to decide when and if and how to answer. Your job is to be a brutally honest beggar of grace, unloading the burdens of your very soul, because he commands you to ask, and he does because he is eager to answer. Which brings us to the third reality of prayer, number three, the unrestricted possibilities of prayer, the unrestricted possibilities of prayer you know most of us myself included can be real cowards when it comes to prayer and if cowards is too strong a word maybe it is Uh, what I mean is we are nevertheless so frequently afraid of praying the wrong thing in the wrong way that it winds up paralyzing us into prayerlessness What I mean is we we wind up being prevented from praying the way we ought, almost as if prayer is like working at a nuclear power plant with all these rigid protocols and strict procedures, and all the while we forget the explosive, world-changing potential of what prayer is. You see, we simply do not remember that when it comes to prayer, there are breathtaking, unrestricted possibilities. Here's what I mean. Look what Christ says in verse 13. He says, and whatever... Then you should ask in my name, this I will do. Did you hear it? Whatever. Whatever you ask. Whatever you ask. Whatever you ask. And you think about that, and those are pretty, wor- pretty risky words, aren't they? I mean, that is a risky thing to offer sinful, selfish people. You don't give kids the launch codes for nuclear weapons. And you don't give sinners whatever they ask for in prayer. They're just going to abuse it and exploit the system. Come on, Jesus, think it through here. And is that, is that really what he's doing? Is he really offering unconditionally just to give us whatever we want, no matter what it is, no matter when we ask it, he will always give us what we need, even if it's to feed our lusts or tickle our fancies, no matter how, how ridiculous or sinful it might be. Is that really what he's offering? And, of course, that's not what he means because, get this, the whatever of verse 13 has already been defined by the works of verse 12. Do you see? The works described in verse 12 have already shaped and determined the whatever in verse 13. What I'm trying to say is this the word whatever does not mean whatever you or I think it means. It is whatever Christ has already said it means. And what he means is this he means whatever you need to obey my word, to bring me glory, to advance my plan, or to increase your joy in me forever, ask it and it will be done for you. That's what he means. When you look at the theology, when you look at chapters 13 through 17, that's, those are the works. That is the whatever about which he speaks. Whatever you need to obey his word and bring him glory and advance his plan and increase your joy in him forever, ask it, and it will be done for you. And my question is, is there anything outside of those four things that you actually need? Do you really need something other than the power to obey his word, to bring him glory, to advance his plan, or to increase your joy in him forever? And if you think, well, I need a job, does that count of is that count as the whatever category? Absolutely it does. Just as long as you remember that the job you get will be determined by Christ and that it will be the one that brings him glory and advances his plan. Or maybe you think, well, I, I would really love to be married. Does that fit into the whatever category? Absolutely it does. If it brings him glory and advances his plan and brings you your joy in him forever, and the reality is if you're asking or hoping for something that isn't to obey his word, bring him glory, advance his plan, or increase your joy in him forever, then newsflash, you are asking for the wrong things. But you see, Christ says, whatever you ask, I will do it. Not because Christianity is difficult, but because Christianity is impossible. One of the most life-changing realities for me, and it's a total no-duh, but it has been one of the, the, the deepest discoveries of me in my life, is that God has called us to labor for that which is his alone to give. So the most basic tasks and responsibilities of the Christian life are unquestionably beyond our reach. That supernatural work requires supernatural power. And yet prayer is the means by which God supplies us that supernatural power to do what he commands And so if praying regularly and urgently and passionately, if that is a struggle for you, it could be. And it probably means that you have forgotten these two things. Number one, it means that you have forgotten how incredibly desperate and needy you really are. And number two, it means that you have forgotten the unrestricted possibilities of prayer to do the impossible. When we forget those things, we do not pray. So my question for you is, What are the whatevers in your life for which you need Christ to supply and intervene? What are the whatevers? Well, what comes to mind? What are the whatevers for you? In what particular areas of your life do you need power to obey his word? What issues in your life would you love to see Christ radically transform by sovereign grace? The question is, what do you need from Christ to increase your joy in Him forever? I mean, do you not realize, do you not realize, church, the staggering potential of prayer to do the impossible? And I don't mean irrational or ridiculous things like changing the past or making square circles or transforming you into the greatest athlete in the world or giving you a billion dollars into your bank account. Rather, I mean whatever you need to obey his word and to advance his plan and bring him glory and increase your joy in him forever. Which brings us to the fourth reality of prayer. Number four, the ultimate provision for prayer. The ultimate provision for prayer. And what I mean is, how do you know with any certainty at all that your prayers are actually going to be answered? Like, How do you know that? How do you know? I mean, how do you know that prayer, launching your prayers into the stratosphere to a person who you cannot see is just as meaningless as blowing out candles on a birthday cake. How do you know? And we know because of what Christ says in the text. Look very carefully at what he says. He says, and whatever then you should ask in my name this I will do. Do you see it? In my name. In my name, that's the issue. In fact, that is the deal breaker when it comes to prayer. You know why? Because to pray in the name of Christ is not some Harry Potter magic spell or some secret password or some pretty please with cherries on top way to manipulate God to answer your prayers. Rather, to pray in the ni- name of Christ means two things at the exact same time. Number one, to pray in Christ's name means that the only right we have to approach the throne of God at all, let alone to have the expectation that our prayers Prayers will be answered is based solely on the merits and the value and the redemptive achievements of Jesus Christ alone. In other words, to pray in the name of Christ not only means that he bought with his blood the right to approach the throne, but that he purchased the guarantee that God will answer our prayers. Do you see? Back in the day, I don't know if they still do this, When you applied for a job, you were required to give references, right? References, credible people of high reputation who could speak on your behalf. This is not that. This is infinitely greater than that. To pray in the name of Christ isn't merely to use him as a credible reference that might tip the scales your way. Rather, it means that he is the one who not only purchased the right to be heard, but that he purchased the guarantee that God hears and answers second thing it means to pray in the name of Christ, and understand this, to pray in the name of Christ is a synonym for his glory. It's a synonym for his glory. To pray in his name is to pray for his glory. And this is everywhere. This is everywhere in the Bible. Psalm 106, verse 8, God saved Israel out of Egypt for the sake of his name. Isaiah 43, 25, God forgives the sins of his people for the sake of his name. Ezekiel 36, God will save Israel in the future for the sake of his name. Psalm 23, 3, God leads us in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. And Isaiah 48, 11, he says he does everything for the sake of his name. It is a synonym for his glory. As you understand, to pray in the name of Christ is not some Christian cliche that magically does anything just because we say the words. Rather, it is a reminder to us that the ultimate motivating intention of Christ in all of our prayers is to put his power and supremacy and worth and value and beauty on open display. That is what it means. So the question is, do you see how profoundly non-man-centered and how profoundly Christ-centered the act of prayer really is? Our prayers are answered. Because of who Christ is and what he has accomplished, our prayers, are answered. to display more and more of who Christ is. That's what it means to pray in the name of Christ. And maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds good. That sounds great. I like that. I can't disagree with that. How does that actually help me and compel me to pray? How does that help me to pray? Because the Christ-centered focus of prayer might make it sound like that we are meaningless peons in the equation nothing could be further from the truth. You see, praying in the name of Christ not only gives you the guarantee that God hears our prayers, but that our prayers for the impossible are not in vain. Which means the question is, what is it that you need most through prayer? For what do you need prayer most even at this very moment? The question is, in what areas of your life would you most love to see victory? Husbands, let's put it this way. In what area of your life would your wife love to most see victory in your life? What family drama or dilemma is is most in need of Christ's sovereign intervention? What fears and anxieties plague your life the most? How would you love to grow spiritually the most in the month of July? You see, Christ wants to free you and he wants to liberate you and he wants to emancipate you to pray this morning. Your your prayers don't have to be Powerful, or po- pro- uh, poetic or profound or, 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 or polished. They just have to be in the name of Christ and that is the guarantee that God will hear and answer. Which brings us to the fifth reality of prayer, number five. The unified purpose of prayer. The unified purpose of prayer. Because one of the things I love about prayer is that prayer is the proof. That all we are on our own are small, easily replaceable cogs in this massive machine called the Great Commission. In other words, prayer humbles us as needy and it exalts God as all sufficient. Prayer puts God in his rightful place as the all-sufficient giver of grace, and prayer puts us in our rightful place as the needy beneficiaries of that grace. Another way to put it is prayer is the mechanism by which the triune God is displayed as the supreme treasure in your life. This is meant to free us. This is meant to release us. This is meant to inspire us. And that's exactly what Christ says at the end of verse 13. Look what he says. He says, whatever then you should ask in my name, this I will do. Why? What does he say? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. And there it is the great theme of the glory of God which is the meaning and purpose and history of everything that happens in the universe. Because when Christ says, look at the text, when Christ says that or so that, he is talking about the ultimate reason for why prayer exists and why does it exist. What does he say? Look very carefully at the text. It is both baffling and it is beautiful. Ask whatever you wish in my name. This I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Do you see it? You see, it the glory that God receives through prayer is a distinctly Trinitarian glory. You see, prayer is not for the glory of the Father alone. Prayer is not for the glory of the Son alone nor is prayer for the glory of the Father and the Son. Rather, what does Christ say? It is for the glory of the Father in the Son and by the Son and through the Son, which sounds awesome and it is awesome. What does it mean? It means that when you are talking about prayer, automatically entered into Trinitarian. The Father and the Son are not sold separately. When the Father is glorified, it is always in and through His Son. When the Son is glorified, it always points back to the Father who sent Him. Do you see? There is an inherently Trinitarian grain and echo and purpose to prayer, and the current that flows between the persons of the Trinity is glory. That's why prayer exists. And I could see someone asking, saying so so what how does that help me to pray well it does help and the reason why is because you know you know that the reason why you exist on this planet is for the glory of God is that not true that is the ultimate purpose for which you exist it is the glory of of God. And so the w- prayer you understand is one of the most strategic ways to live out that purpose. Don't you see? Do, do you not see that the, you were created for the glory of God and prayer is one of the most strategic ways to live out that purpose? And when you feel that, you will begin to pray. And when you pray like that, God will be glorified, or should I say, the Father will be glorified in the Son. You, you need to understand is that how you glorify God in your life is not by being insanely talented or gifted or feeling sufficient, but by being insanely dependent upon his sufficiency. You see, if dependence is the goal of the Christian life, and it is, then you need to know that your weakness is to your advantage. Do you understand that? If dependence is the goal in the Christian life, and it is, then you must know that your weakness is to your advantage. In other words, you must despair in your worthless, paltry resources to live the Christian life. And you must cast yourself upon Christ for his endless ones. We get The pleasure, we get the power, he gets the praise, everybody wins. That's why prayer is such a big deal. And so the question is, the question is, how are you doing glorifying God in your life? How are you doing glorifying God in your life? Which means what I'm asking is, how are you doing being needy and desperate and vulnerable before God in prayer? I mean, the question is, are, are, are our packed calendars long? Oh, I work a lot, too, and I have a smartphone also, but we need to wake up this morning. We need to wake up at how much nothing we spend our time doing, and by nothing, I mean in a John 15, 5 sense, nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing, because get this, apart from prayer, listen to that qualification, apart from prayer, all of our scurrying about, all of our talking All of our wall-to-wall activities and endless hangouts and friend events amounts to nothing. For most of us, the voice of self-reliance is ten times louder than the bell that tolls for the hour of prayer. And yet the voice cries out, does it not? You must answer that text. You must must read that article. You must read that email. You must listen to that podcast. You must watch that series. You must run that errand. You must go to that event. You must hang out with this person. You must, you must, you must, you must. And yet the bell still tolls softly in the background. Without me, you can do nothing. We must pray. Not merely because that's just what Christians do, but because it is the means by which the Father is glorified in the Son. Which brings us to the sixth and final reality in this text of prayer, and it's this, number six, the unrivaled provider through prayer. The unrivaled provider through prayer. Because you understand that when you see the same thing in a text, same thing in the same text mentioned twice, it's always intentional, it's always purposeful, and it's always significant. And that's exactly what we see. Look at verse 14. Christ says, if you should ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And you see it, right? It's almost a replica of verse 13, isn't it? You see, Christ is up to something here because you understand when something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. But this is the one exception. You see, Christ repeats the staggering promise of prayer to persuade the disciples and us to know just what it is that we have at our disposal. Because again, you have to understand the disciples are pretty bent out of shape here. Christ told them in chapter 13 that he had to leave them. They couldn't come with him. And yet he wants them to know that just because he is leaving them does not mean he is leaving them. He will be just as present and close to them as the words in their mouths and the thoughts in their heads through prayer. He repeats what he just said in verse 13 because he wants them and you to know, yes, you heard me right. I mean what I say and I do what I say. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that? Of course, it does have the thunderous qualification. Whatever means, whatever you need, to obey his word, to bring him glory, to advance his plan, and to increase your joy in him forever. But do you believe that, that whatever you ask in his name, it will be done for you? Whatever. You understand, prayer is the God-given instrument through which God advances his predestined plan before time. You are a part of that. When you pray, do you realize that you are a part of that which is infinite? And and yet, similar though it may be, verse 14 is not the same as verse 13, is it? There's a small, tiny, little difference, and yet it is also a monumental and significant difference. But again, notice, notice what Christ says. Christ says, if you should ask anything in my name, I will do it. Isn't that interesting? The word anything is just two Greek letters. And yet, In those two letters are infinite possibilities. Christ hands us. He just just hands us a blank check of prayer and says, fill it out. Here it is. Whatever you need to obey my word, to bring me glory, to advance my plan. To increase your joy in me forever. Just ask, ask, ask anything, and it will be done for you. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not October, maybe not 2035, maybe not even in your lifetime, but if it will help you obey his word and bring him glory and advance his plan and increase your joy in him forever, it will be done for you in some way at some time. Think about it, the salvation of some hardened family member. Ask. Some stubborn, hard to reach sin that never seems to take no for an answer. Ask. Some tangled and complex relationship issue that seems to have no resolution. Ask difficult circumstances, difficult people for which there does not seem to be a solution. It never hurts to ask. In fact, it would be sin if you didn't. Oh, church, how Christ wants to liberate you this morning, to pray like never before, because prayer is the means through which he does the profoundly supernatural in your life. And that brings us to the crucial difference between verse 14 and 13. It all has to do, it all has to do with whom Christ identifies as the object of prayer because the disciples and probably you have just always assumed that the Father, the Father alone is the one to whom you pray and you should pray to the Father and yet shocking though it may be, the Father is not the only one to whom you pray because look what he says in verse 14. He says, if you should ask me, for anything in my name I will do it I mean is that an obvious claim to be God or what when you pray you pray to me maybe you think well hold on Jesus you told us that when we asked you how to pray you said father hallowed be your name. And that's true. That's true. You, you should pray to the Father also. But again, you remember that prayer is profoundly Trinitarian, isn't it? And again, his point is, although he is leaving them, he is not leaving them at all. He is always within talking distance, praying distance as the object of prayer. He is the unrivaled provider through prayer. And don't feel confused by this. Don't get get Trinitarian vertigo here. You don't have to pick one over the other. You don't feel like that you're going to make one envious or jealous if you pray to one and not to the other. You can pray to any person of the triune God or to the triune God all at once. But don't miss the point. The point is Jesus Christ is Way more than some controversial rabbi who did nice things for people. He's way more than some revolutionary who merely died for a good cause. He he's way more than some commendable figure who who led a good example. No, he is God Himself who never had a beginning who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who rules the universe with ease. He's far above all rule and power and authority and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but in the one to come. He is the God who became man for us and for our salvation and who promised us without even so much as batting an eye, whatever you ask me in my name, I will do it for you. Is that a mandate to pray or what? Does that not unleash us and free us and inspire us and compel us to pray or what? The question is, the question is, will you take him up on his offer? Do you have the guts to take him up on his offer? Are you willing to see prayer with fresh eyes this morning, not merely as a duty to be done, but as a weapon to be wielded? Are you willing to see that prayer is not some mystical act of piety where we think we hear God's voice, but it is the means through which Christ does the absolutely impossible? Are you ready to see that prayer is not only for our own personal devotional delight, but it is the way that God changes history for his glory in and through his son? Because I don't know. I I don't know what your prayer life is like right now. It may not be satisfying, It may not be continual. It may not be passionate. It may not be consistent. It may not even be in existence right now. And that's okay. Don't beat yourself up because that's why texts like John 14, 12 through 14 are in the Bible. Not merely to remind us that we should pray. Or that we could pray if we wanted. But that we would simply be out of our minds not to pray. Because the words of the hymn are true. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And with that said, let's pray. And here's what I want you to do. As we pray, we're going to take a a moment to pray quietly, silently. Instead of just me praying, I want you to pray. And I want to go back to the question that I asked earlier still with heads bowed, eyes closed. I just want you to think. I want you to ponder. I want you to meditate. I want you to answer the question and use it as the fuel for your prayer. Even now, I want you to ask, think about what are the whatevers in your life for which you most need the power of Christ. What are the whatevers in your life in which you most need the power of Christ? Another question, another way to ask it is, in what particular area of your life do you need the power of Christ to obey his word? What issues would you love to see Christ radically transform in your life? What do you need from Christ to increase your joy in him? Take a moment I want you to pray in the name of Christ for the glory of the Father through his Son. Take those whatevers to the throne of grace. And I'll close this in just a moment. Christ, we understand how silly what we just did would look to the world. Lord, sitting in silence with eyes closed, this looked meaningless and powerless. This looked insignificant, and yet we know, oh Lord, we know that what just happened here in these few moments, this was the opposite of that. This was eternally significant. This was your people approaching the throne of Grace. And Lord, what I'm asking for, what I'm asking for is that you would indeed free us and inspire us and compel us and instruct us how to pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would be so richly indwelt by and with your word that it would provoke, it would elicit, it would overflow in vibrant, in those powerful lives of prayer. I understand, Lord, we know from your word that we will not pray as we ought unless we are filled with your word. So I pray for those kinds of people. And I do pray for a word-filled, prayer-drenched movement in this church. That you would move in the, the souls of your people. To drive them to pray with great freedom. That they would see. That they would be unleashed by this text right here. To see, O Lord, that that we must go for broke when it comes to praying and asking you, O Lord, to do the very things that you have predestined. So help us, Lord, help us not to see prayer as just a duty to be done, but as as a weapon of war by which you unfold your plan of salvation crafted before the foundation of the world. Help us, Christ, we're just people, we're just branches, and we need your help. And we gladly ask for it, knowing that you are more, more than eager to answer. And it's in your matchless name that we pray.